1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Activism has long been a dangerous vocation in Colombia, but it's particularly deadly recently. Last month alone, 19 social leaders were killed or went missing. Our correspondent examines why the violence is on the rise. And the American state of Oregon is trying a daring experiment, decriminalizing the personal use of illicit drugs. We take a look at the risks of the policy and the changes that must come with it to guarantee its many benefits. But first... No, no, no! No, no! It's a scene that's becoming all too familiar in Hong Kong. This week, more pro-democracy activists are on trial. Before appearing in court, one of the accused, Lee Chuk-Yun, said Hong Kong's rule of law is deteriorating. What we witness is that law illegal, law become an instrument of political suppression. Eight other high-profile figures have been charged with organizing and participating in an unauthorized assembly. The charges stemmed not from Hong Kong's draconian new national security law, but from the protests prior to its introduction. In June 2019, millions of Hong Kongers began taking to the streets. They were opposing an extradition bill that they saw as a grave threat to the territory's delicate independence from the mainland government. Over months, the demonstrations escalated. Vandalism and violence were met with tear gas and rubber bullets. This week's trial focuses on one particular protest.
2: So on August 18, 2019, more than one million people gathered to protest, despite very heavy rain that day.
1: Su Lin Wong is a China correspondent for The Economist and is based in Hong Kong.
2: So the police had granted permission for people to protest in Victoria Park, but they weren't granted permission to march on the streets. But because there were so many people who showed up, inevitably people flowed out. But the 18th August protest actually marked the first tear gas-free weekend in a month. So it really was extremely peaceful compared to many of the protests that had come before it.
1: And so if that day's protests remained peaceful, why are activists on trial for for being a part of it?
2: So there are nine high-profile activists who are all on trial, charged with organising and participating in an unauthorised assembly. And so they face penalties of up to five years in jail. It's important to note that they haven't been charged under the national security law, which was introduced after this protest occurred. So the prosecution is accusing this group of defying police instructions, encouraging crowds to march and causing traffic disruptions. While the defence doesn't contest the facts that they help to organise and participate in the peaceful assembly, what they're arguing is that the charges violate a basic right to assembly guaranteed under Hong Kong law. And they are challenging the constitutionality of the police's ability to ban assemblies, especially when the protests were directed at the police themselves.
1: And and you say that all the defendants are are high-profile parts of of Hong Kong's democracy movement.
2: Yeah, so interestingly, this particular case is focused on an older generation of pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong who are generally considered to be moderate and who believe in trying to change the system from within by, for example, running for parliament, in contrast to a younger generation of protesters who we saw take to the streets in 2019. So the fact that it's it's this group of older pro-democracy campaigners indicates that the government is trying to crush the democracy movement as a whole, as opposed to going after particular protesters who they see as particularly violent. The two most high-profile defendants in this case are Martin Lee and Jimmy Lai. So Martin Lee is considered the father of the democracy movement in Hong Kong. He's now 82 years old. The other high-profile figure is Jimmy Lai, who is a media tycoon and runs a pro-democracy tabloid in Hong Kong and is, is despised by the Chinese Communist Party.
1: And so how do you think this trial will go?
2: So two of the nine have pleaded guilty to the charges and the remaining seven have pleaded not guilty. So the sentence for the two who pleaded guilty is expected next month and then the trial for the seven who pleaded not guilty is expected to last two weeks. And so courts in Hong Kong still have a relatively high degree of autonomy and there's a high standard of evidence that's expected in cases. So people are hoping that the courts will will still remain as independent as they were known to be prior to the protests.
1: But as you say, targeting these fathers and mothers of democracy in in Hong Kong is, is quite telling.
2: So I think the outlook for democracy in Hong Kong is extremely grim, And while some supporters did rally outside the court on Tuesday, since the national security law was introduced mid last year, there have been very few protests, harshly because of COVID restrictions, but also because there has been a real layer of fear that has settled across the city. People have been arrested for holding up blank posters and slogans that we heard all the time on the streets in 2019 have now been labelled seditious. Even just over the past month, we've seen a bunch of developments that seem to be restricting freedom in Hong Kong. So Hong Kong's Education Department recently released guidelines warning that teachers should report students to the police if they are violating the national security law. What might constitute violating national security law is so broad because it really can be anything that Beijing considers subversion or secession. We've also seen increased internet controls, so a Hong Kong internet service provider blocked access to a pro-democracy website in January and that was really the first type of internet block we've seen. so so the direction that the city is heading in seems increasingly authoritarian.
1: And meanwhile, the the voices of dissent are getting quieter.
2: Yeah, I think the feeling on the ground in Hong Kong is you now either have to stay silent or leave. And you've got 1.3 billion people in mainland China, many of whom would love to live in Hong Kong, which is still much freer than the mainland there's no great firewall here, and you still have much higher levels of freedom of speech and freedom of the press than you do in the mainland. So, some of my contacts who are more supportive of the Communist Party joke that they're fine if, if all the pro democracy activists and advocates leave because Hong Kong can easily be repopulated with loyalists from the mainland.
1: Su thank you very much for your time.
2: Thanks very much, Jason.
1: For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash offer. The link is in the show notes.
0: World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot.
1: 2016, a 52-year war between the Colombian government and a rebel group called the FARC ended with a peace deal. Its confirmation, announced by then-president Juan Manuel Santos, was broadcast in towns and city squares. It was cause for huge celebrations in a country where kidnapping and murder had become commonplace. — But for some, the peace deal has brought little relief. Among them are those who campaign on issues such as indigenous rights, land reform, and environmental protection. In fact, for those activists, known in Colombia as social leaders, the deal only seems to have brought more peril.
3: Jordan Eduardo Guetio was a leader from the NASA people, an indigenous group who live in Cauca in western Colombia.
1: Mariana Palau writes for The Economist and is based in Bogota.
3: On the afternoon of February 2nd, he was riding his motorcycle with his father when suddenly men wearing military fatigues stopped them. They let Mr. Guetio's father go, but they shot him dead at close range. He wasn't even 30 years old.
1: And how common are murders of this kind?
3: Activism has always been a dangerous vocation in Colombia. So in the 1980s and all the way to the early 2000s, you had right-wing paramilitary groups murdering trade unionists, communists, and peasant leaders. You also had, for example, the FARC kidnapping peasants who opposed them. But there was hope that this would end with the peace deal that was signed between the government and the FARC in 2016. And the truth is that it hasn't. At least 400 rights defenders have been killed since 2016. That's according to the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. Colombia's ombudsman actually has documented more, 710 such cases during the same period. In January this year, we saw 19 activists and leaders killed. And this could be the deadliest year yet since 2016 for activists and leaders.
1: And who is targeting them and why?
3: Since the FARC demobilized, Colombia has seen the rise of illegal armed groups that are fighting each other to control the territories that the FARC vacated. These include guerrilla outfits and also organized crime groups that were created by FARC and paramilitary fighters who just refused to disarm. And these groups' interests clash directly with those of social leaders and activists. So I'll give you an example. These groups depend on drug trafficking, and they coerce farmers into planting coca, which is used to make cocaine. And in Nariño, which is a department in southwestern Colombia, drug trafficking groups are attacking advocates of the government's crop substitution program, which seeks to have farmers transition from coca to a legal crop such as cacao. If you go to Cauca, a bit further up north you have indigenous and Afro-Colombian leaders being killed because they are trying to keep these illegal armed groups and their illegal economies away from their territories.
1: But weren't many of these activists targets before the peace deal as well?
3: Yes, definitely. But the issue is at least much more obvious now. And that may be because peace has encouraged more activists to make more demands, right? So, they campaigned for a broad set of issues that were once just overshadowed by war. And these include things like rights of indigenous and Afro-Colombian people, land reform, protecting the environment, fighting corruption, and even basic things such as demanding access to water and electricity.
1: I mean, is the, is the national government doing anything about this?
3: Yeah. So President Duque, President Ivan Duque, he's a conservative president— He has set up policies to try to protect social leaders. For example, he came up with this plan that he calls the Timely Action Plan, and it seeks to create public policy that responds to the threats that activists and leaders are facing. Colombia also has something that is called the National Protection Unit, and it has given hundreds of leaders cell phones, bulletproof vests, and even bodyguards and armored vehicles. But there is a basic problem, and it is that the state remains absent from large parts of Colombia despite this peace deal with the FARC. And the government's idea of establishing order is sending thousands of soldiers to these very dangerous areas to kill drug traffickers and other illegal armed groups, but it hasn't exactly set up institutions needed to enforce the law. So without order— The government is kind of left to protect social leaders one by one, and that's just an incredibly hard task to accomplish.
1: Which is to say that the death toll is just going to continue to rise.
3: Unfortunately, there's reason to believe that it will. You know, there is a very big problem behind this issue, and it is there's a lot of mistrust between the government and social leaders. So activists are very cynical about the government because the stage has just not been present in the parts of the country where they live. And they are also very wary of Mr. Duque because he opposed the peace deal with the FARC and activists largely support it. Activists and social leaders, I must say, have also refused sometimes to meet public officials to discuss policies that are designed to protect them. And I should also mention a Human Rights Watch report, which was published on February 10th. And it really urges the government to take these steps to establish state presence, right, to establish police force and to established law courts in regions where social leaders are being slaughtered. The problem is, these are things that take a lot of time to build. And Mr. Duca's term will end in mid-2022. He is running out of time to do that. So tragedies like the murder of Mr. Quetio will keep occurring.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Mariana.
3: Thank you for having
1: me. The American state of Oregon is trying a new tactic to deal with drug abuse, decriminalization. Instead of being arrested or sent to jail, people who are caught using drugs will be treated much more lightly.
4: So in early February, Oregon became the first state to decriminalize possession of small amounts of drugs. And these small amounts of drugs are defined as having less than one gram of heroin or MDMA, or two grams of methamphetamine or cocaine, and other small quantities of other types of drugs.
1: Tamara Jilks-Bohr is The Economist's U.S. policy correspondent.
4: Those who are caught with a small amount of drugs will face a $100 fine or a health assessment. And that health assessment could lead to treatment rather than jail time.
1: So how is it that that Oregon's come to, to have this policy?
4: So Oregon voters voted on it last year in November. And the policy is aimed at getting people away from jails, and more towards treatment and help. The idea is to make sure that drug use is treated as a public health issue rather than a criminal issue. What's interesting is that the treatment centers will be funded by revenue from legalized marijuana, and legalized marijuana revenue reached $133 million in 2020. It's really important to note that decriminalization is different from legalization. It is still illegal to use these substances, and it's illegal to sell these drugs, that is still a punishable offense, but now is treated more like a parking ticket and is less worthy of jail time.
1: And so what impacts do you think that this policy change will have?
4: The Oregon Criminal Justice Commission expects that the new law will decrease the load on the criminal justice system. They're expecting a 91% reduction in arrests for possession of controlled substances based on 2019 estimates. They also think that this is going to have impact on thousands of Oregonians. For example, they estimate that 1800 fewer Oregonians will be convicted of felony possession and 1900 fewer of misdemeanor possession. So this is really an opportunity for a really overburdened public defense system to see a reduction in cases Bridget Budbill of the Office of Public Defense Services thinks that this will have a particular impact on racial minorities who get disproportionately arrested for possession and caught up in the criminal justice system.
1: This isn't the first time this kind of experiment has been carried out, right? That this this same policy has been the case in Portugal for some time, right?
4: Yes. In 2001, Portugal became the first country to decriminalize drug consumption for personal use. And it's been very successful. They saw a reduction in drug-induced deaths and a reduction in rates of HIV infection. Portugal's National Coordinator for Drugs and Drug Addiction, Joao Castel Branco-Gulao, warns, however, that while the policy has been successful in Portugal, decriminalization must be paired with other policies or else it will fail. And any plan should consider four factors. Accessible treatment, prevention, harm reduction, and reintegration. So while we're not sure exactly how this will play out, Oregon's new law, does require that the Oregon Health Authority provide treatment and services. So while this is still in development, it's aiming to provide 24-7 access to triage services, housing, and interventions for overdose prevention, and other services.
1: But what about the concern that many people have that it's going to make drugs more accessible, more visible for younger people, kind of destigmatize the whole business?
4: That is certainly possible, and some people are quite worried about this, and that's why decriminalization has to be paired with sensible social policies and programs. So we need to make sure that we have prevention programs, for example, in place to make sure that we are making it clear that drug addiction is not a good thing and that this is still an offense. It is still against the law and emphasize that those who are truly struggling with this as a public health issue will get the services they need.
1: And what about the degree to which this Oregonian experiment spreads to outside Oregon, to other states?
4: So we're seeing that several other states are making moves to legalize drugs other than marijuana and cannabis. New York introduced a bill decriminalizing small amounts of any controlled substance in January. And State Senator Scott Wiener of California announced plans to introduce a bill decriminalizing psychedelics this year. And Massachusetts State Representative Michael Colony told me that he plans to file legislation this week to decriminalize psychedelics. And he estimates that if this is approved, Massachusetts could see decriminalization in two to four years. So overall, we're seeing more of an admission that the war on drugs has truly failed in America. We're seeing a movement to treat drug addiction as a public health issue rather than a criminal issue. So I think we're going to see a growing number of states take steps to decriminalize drugs for personal use over the next few years.
1: Tamara, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.